This week on Tech Talk, we'll hear from Microsoft Ireland's site lead about its €3 million Euro investment in digital education. Members of Ungarda Siakana will talk about solving crimes from romance fraud to ransomware and we'll have the rundown on some of the tech stories of the week. Plus, I have an incredible Samsung S95B OLED TV to give away to one lucky listener. As ever, you can email the show techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter at JessKellyNT. But first, I want to read you something uh, that Martin Lewis, who is a financial expert, I'm sure you'd recognise him if you saw him, uh, he tweeted this out on Wednesday of this week. Dear Deliveroo, do you really need to pump debt as a way to pay for takeaways? By now, pay later may seem innocuous, but it is, number one, not yet regulated, and number two, debt, even if done right, it's 0%. Borrowing should be only if needed for planned, one-off, budgeted purchase, not a cheeky Nando's. This is a really interesting story and I'm delighted to say that Vish Gain of Silicon Republic is with me now to discuss. Uh, Vish, give us a rundown on this story. Yeah, so it's a bit of a bizarre story. I mean, people are familiar with Deliveroo, obviously, and uh, people have been using different sorts of payments methods to get their online food delivered. But this one is the first time that buy now, pay later has been introduced to food deliveries in the UK and by extension Ireland as well. Um, So essentially the story is that Deliveroo and Klarna um, which is a Swedish fintech that offers buy now, pay later services, have teamed up to offer UK and Irish customers the ability to um, make payments for their food deliveries, but not at once, but over a couple of installments. Um, and it's quite unconventional for this sort of payment to be used for, um, you know, uh, commodities that are very low price, such as a regular meal, which would cost less than 20 euros every time you order something. Yeah, it's bonkers. A lot of people may have started to hear bits and pieces about Klarna. If you've been on certain websites, you may have seen the option um, to pay with Klarna. In the Deliveroo instance, I think in the UK anyway, they're saying that, you know, if it's an order over 30 quid, then you have the option to pay with Klarna. And I understand Martin Lewis's point here. You know, we all know that there is a cost of living crisis. And now this notion is being put out there that you can get your takeaway on a buy now, pay later scheme. It doesn't sit right, sure it doesn't. It's not just me. No, yeah, I mean, it definitely it makes you question where's the threshold after which we should start considering buy now, pay later mm-hmm. as an option. I mean, for really small commodities, do we really need it is something we need to ask ourselves, especially because um, when you order food, it's, you know, if you go into debt because of one meal, the meal f- is exhausts itself in 15 minutes uh, mm-hmm. or 10 if you're me. But, um, you know, uh, it, it just, uh, it, it doesn't have the same level of, um, urgency that some others say if you're buying a new refrigerator if you're buying a washing machine or even the new iPhone 14 yeah. um, those kind of stuff obviously it helps anyone to be able to pay in installments but something like food um, the the sort of uh, the worry is that people are going to start ordering even more food because of that um, and that can lead to lots of problems for instance um, just you know paying more than they can afford to for many people 100%. and as well as you know promoting unhealthy practices now at the same time, you shouldn't treat people like children. They know what they're doing, I think, at but the same time. But do they, though? This is what I, I wanted to get into because I use contactless payment all the time. I use Apple Pay every single day. It's fantastic. I go around and I tap and I think, I'll worry about that later. I'll worry about that later. If people know that they can get food, and I'm saying this in air quotes, even though it's on radio, for free by using it on by, by buying it with Klarna and then kicking that can down the road they're going to get a nasty land down the line. Yeah, I mean, Clarina, one of their arguments in response to this um, was that 
Um, the fact that people have been using credit cards or overdrafts to make payments for many years now mm. is another sign that people are willing to use debt as a means to pay for even small commodities such as online food deliveries or whatever it is. Um, and so th- this is not too different from those, but uh, obviously it does end up encouraging and promoting um, buying much more and that can, you know, that can have negative consequences. The model that they have is really clever because as I understand it, there's no interest. It's a case of you pay it back when you pay it back. Yeah. The, the, where's the incentive to pay it back if you know what I mean like what, what is the, the, the danger zone because what I could envisage and maybe I'm just too cynical is that people use and abuse this yeah so the incentive for Klarna here, here is obviously that um, even though they're not getting any interest from the people they're getting money from the retailers that they're uh-huh. having a partnership with and that's their financial model but um the problem there is that it's not a regulated market as much as, say, credit cards are. So credit cards have certain uh, mechanisms that ensure that people don't end up paying too much. Uh, there are caps and you know there are laws around the use of credit cards for both companies as well as uh, consumers. But that does not apply yet to you know companies like Klarna or Affirm or Zip or other um, buy now pay later companies simply because they're very new. I mean, mm-hmm. they only became popular during the pandemic when online shopping became you know much more prominent, um, and they sort of capitalized on that. Uh, that resurgence of online um, shopping. But um, yeah, it's not regulated. There are plans to regulate it in the UK as well as in the US and possibly in the European Union, so by extension Ireland. But uh, as of now, it's not a heavily regulated um, market, not as much as credit cards anyway. So that's a big concern and that can lead to, you know, if they become, if they proliferate um, uh, the economy a lot and people start using them, Mm. you know, very um, dangerously, I suppose. Um, then that can lead to negative consequences in the future. So it needs to be regulated. Is uh, should, That should be one of the priorities now. So finally then, do you anticipate other companies and service providers offering Klarna as a payment method? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it depends. I mean, time, and, time will tell, obviously. I mean, it depends on how the delivery um, uh, deal goes for Klarna. If people actually start using it a lot more, um, and if it hits off, I mean, obviously they're not they're not going to take it back now just because some people have criticised mm-hmm. it and said it's irresponsible. Um, you know, they need to make money and uh, people, many people as well, will be more than happy to be able to use this payments uh, method. Um, and so if it goes well, then I can imagine like other retailers using it for low commodity um, purchases as well. So for instance, like um, buying stuff from online e-commerce websites mm-hmm. that are not food, such as maybe Amazon or um, or even paying for like um, subscriptions sometimes for streaming services. Services. You can maybe if in one, in one if you're making like a bulk payment for an annual subscription, you yeah. can probably divide it into four, which the streaming service does anyway. Gives you an option for monthly, but you can change it through Klarna, for instance. And this is by the way speculative; it's not actually happening. But you know, it'll offer people to make smaller payments, um, and and uh, it can quite easily um, take from the delivery example yeah. and, and go on. So it depends on if it's successful. If people are actually willing to make these small payments using buy now pay later. Yeah, I would love to know what you think. You can email me techtalk at newstalk.com. Uh, Vishgain of Silicon Republic, thank you so much for joining us here on News Talk. Now, another big announcement from this week was Microsoft Ireland's €3 million Euro investment into digital education, specifically its hub called DreamSpace. I went out on Tuesday to the company's HQ in Leopardstown to meet with site lead James O'Connor to find out more about this announcement. But we started out by talking about the importance of the Irish operation. 
This is quite a unique site for Microsoft and globally and internationally because we have five different functions here, which is quite unusual if you go to most Microsoft offices around the world. They're either sales office or research and development office. We've got research and development here, uh, which continues to expand and grow. These are people working on our core product development. We also have operations for all of international Microsoft based out of here. We have our digital sales uh, for our small and medium-sized businesses from across all of EMEA, uh, doing that work from here in multiple languages. Uh, we also have our local sales team looking after the island of Ireland. And then finally, we have our data center folks that actually run the data centers in Ireland, but also manage our data centers throughout the Europe, Middle East and Africa region. I know that education and inclusion is something that Microsoft is and has always been very passionate about. Yeah. One of the brilliant facilities you have here that I've been in many times is DreamSpace. Yeah. Can you tell me what DreamSpace is before we talk about the exciting Absolutely. announcements? So the journey of DreamSpace started when we opened up our campus here four years ago. And the campus is here in Leperstown Racecourse for anyone that's been at the racecourse uh, in South Dublin. You can't miss the campus. We're very proud of it. And when we opened it up four years ago, there was a clearly and still is a challenge uh, in Ireland in terms of digital skilling. Um, particularly in primary and post-primary level, but really all the way through the different life cycles. Um, we know from studies that by 2030, 90% uh, of people will require some digital skills. All of us are getting more digitized every single day, regardless of what role we're in. Every business is becoming digitized. But the startling figure is that only 2% of students coming out of education are actually ready with the digital skills to do the jobs they need to do. So we identify that gap. We don't believe that gap is just with academia and educators to solve or with government. We believe that as a, a tech, tech company, we need to uh, lead and partner with academia and partner with uh, government to solve that problem. So when we opened up our ca campus, we identified an area that's actually in the reception area as you walk in. We built out a large physical area called Dream Space. We set a bold goal at that time that can we actually uh, um, reach out and basically enable 100,000 students to go through the Dream Space experience in the next four years. And we invested 5 million euros to build out that capability in that facility. And uh, the great news is that since then, we obviously had students and schools coming in every day. It brings huge energy. It's teacher-led um, uh, by Amanda and the team. We have five dedicated teachers. Uh, and as that was scaling, then we hit COVID. Mm -hmm. The team then really had to stand back and effectively uh, reinvent all of our offerings that were in a physical environment to a digital environment. And that actually gave us huge scale and reach uh, where we built out a learning platform and we also partnered with RTE, for example, on, on RTE Junior in terms of DreamSpace TV. And with that, over the last four years, the initial target was 100,000 kids. We've actually reached over 130,000 kids and we actually reached over 5,000 teachers. And we know that the impact has been very, very significant. Uh, Minute University conducted a study, a research study, on the students going through that experience. They firstly found that from the teachers' feedback that 90% of the students had a positive impact. They were thinking differently about digital skills, future careers in STEM that, that they would not have thought about before the experience. And then the second thing that really came out was for girls that over 40% of the girls that actually came through it for the first time were thinking about STEM subjects in college and future STEM careers. And we also saw that from disadvantaged areas for girls, there was over 30% of an impact for those girls where they were thinking about STEM for the first time. Mm -hmm. So we saw the impact very, very significantly through the last four years uh, to meet and exceed those targets by 30%.
So tell me a little bit about the announcement from today then, because again, it's another significant development. So based on that impact and based on the journey and particularly based on the impact that we're seeing students and teachers having, we've now decided to, that our intention is to invest a further 3 million euros in the next four years. And we've set a very, really big ambitious target of reaching 1 million students across the island of Ireland uh, in the next four years. And we're going to do that at scale uh, with the multitude of programs and offerings uh, that the team have continued to build out. So that's really the big announcement today is our intention to invest another 3 million euros uh, to reach 1 million uh, students and teachers across Ireland. Mm. One thing that a cynic might say, and I'm not a cynic at all, but <laughs> they might wonder why Microsoft is investing so much in this space. Is it to tick uh, a box in terms of giving back to community? Is it because you want all these people to work for Microsoft? Or is it a bigger vision for the country of Ireland and the digital skills that are needed? Well, it starts firstly with, we have a very ambitious mission statement, Microsoft as a company, and that's to empower every individual and organization to achieve more. And when it comes to Ireland, we've been investing in Ireland since the mid-80s. We started in, in 1985 in Ireland. Uh, and we continue to uh, scale up that investment and uh, those different capabilities and functions that I talked about earlier, Jess. And when you look at that, then you look at Ireland Inc. and the opportunity for Ireland Inc. Digital skilling is going to be at the centre of differentiating Ireland Inc. in terms of where we're going to compete internationally and where we're going to continue to grow and scale uh, the different capabilities and the different businesses that are here, either multinational or indigenous. And digital skills at the center of that. So as I said earlier, we clearly have a huge digital skilling gap. Uh, and that's at all levels. And we don't believe we should just leave educators and academia and government to solve that problem on their own. We believe that we can partner with them and actually scale and do that and accelerate it. And that's why we're making that investment over the last four years. And that's why we're making this additional €3 million Euro investment uh, over the next four years to scale it. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be a big, big impact for, for Ireland Inc. And if some of those students come back and work for Microsoft, even that's a bonus. Mm-hmm. But really, we're doing this in terms of the impact this is going to have for Ireland Inc. and the importance of enabling everyone to achieve more. That was James O'Connor, site lead for Microsoft Ireland. And while I was there in the HQ, I caught up with Amanda Jolliffe, who is the lead on the DreamSpace programme. She told me about what this investment will mean for the expansion of the DreamSpace mission. Yeah, we're absolutely delighted with the announcement today that we're getting a further 3 million euro invested in DreamSpace. Um, And we're excited too that with that comes that big ambition to reach a million students because we feel like we've achieved a lot. We've reached over 130,000 students. We've worked with over 5,000 teachers, but we are really aware that a lot of people still don't know what DreamSpace is. A lot of people still haven't had a chance to access DreamSpace. And so with the new suite of programs we have, we hope to just give everyone that exposure and that access to uh, STEM learning experience with us. And I don't want to obviously see an Excel spreadsheet full of the details, but what does that money mean in terms of reaching that target of a million uh, students, teachers and parents and so on? Yeah, so I suppose with the programming we've developed out, we obviously need to resource that. We need to develop that content. We need to work with partners to build out um, some of our programs. Um, so, for example, one of the things we're announcing today is that we're launching the DreamSpace Digital Academy, which is basically an online platform for students to access bespoke learning pathways um, across different areas of STEM. And that's something that we need to build. It's something that we need to host in the background. Um, so basically, we're trying to funnel um, that resourcing and that finance in to make sure that there's a plethora of opportunities for students to engage because we know there's not a one size fits all. Mm-hmm. One of the things we spoke about last time when we were discussing the STEM passport was the access to technology. 
So it's fantastic that programs like this exist. When kids go home, they may not have the devices to continue it. So you teach them how to do basic coding or whatever it is, and then they can't do it again until they're in university or whatever. Like, is that still an issue that needs to be addressed? And how do we go about addressing that one? Yeah, absolutely. I think the digital divide is something we've tried to look at. So one of actually, one of the other things that we're developing out is working with the Department of Rural and Community Development. They're rolling out obviously broadband across Ireland. um, And part of that is they have broadband connection point sites. um, And within those sites, actually, um, we are rolling out like DreamSpace Den is what we're calling it. We're working with the Trinity College Project, Our Kids Code as well, which works with parents in those locations. So the idea is there that if we work with parents and teachers and schools in those locations, even if their buildings, their homes or their schools don't have the broadband access, Mm -hmm. they can utilise the sites and the DreamSpace Den materials there and our digital academy resources, hopefully when we roll them out, to get that access because it definitely is still a big barrier and something that we need to be mindful of when we're rolling out these things. Mm And as a teacher talking to other teachers, what's the reception you get? You know, is there an appetite for this, not only from the kids' point of view, but also some teachers? Because teachers are people too. And not every teacher is into technology. Uh, Not every teacher, you know, would necessarily have the know-how to be able to do this regularly. But they may want to or they may wish to be able to. So what's some of the feedback that you get from the teaching community? So... The feedback's really positive. I mean, like teachers are, you know, wear many hats, as we know in schools, our team are teachers, so we're very understanding of that. So what we're trying to do is really empower them to empower the students as best we can. And that's where the variety of resources come in. So you might go from a a DreamSpace TV or now the DreamSpace Digital Academy, where really we will lead the lesson. We're trying to lift that pressure off the teacher to lead and take that that content knowledge away from the pressure on the teacher. Um, And so deliver through that. But then we also have programs that where we train the teachers. So we're trying to kind of look across the spectrum because like you said, um, some teachers, don't, they, they're, they're already upskilling in so many areas. They can't give a, a 100% of their time to just this. And that's where some of our resources can then plug that gap. Um, and then some teachers really have an interest in this and that's where maybe they do the teacher training with us and take part in our teacher community. Um, so really that's why we have a suite of programming and we don't, again, just pick on one thing because we're aware of that, that difference. But I think... Um, you know, when you look at what schools are trying to roll out in terms of digital strategy and stuff, and um, there is an onus on everyone, like there's like that kind of lifelong learning is across the teaching area as well. And teachers are aware of that. They're giving up time all the time, as we see here doing CPD and stuff. So it's just about getting the balance right mm-hmm. um, and just trying to support. That's what we're trying to do is just support the teachers in the rollout too and meet them where they're at. That was Amanda Jolliffe, Dreamspace lead at Microsoft Ireland, speaking to me earlier this week on the back of that three million euro investment by the company into digital education. Now it's time for this. Now, how would you like to win an incredible 65-inch OLED TV from Samsung? We have a Samsung S95B OLED 4K Quantum TV to give to one of you listening right now. I had this TV for a few weeks. I put it through its paces. It is unreal. If you head over to YouTube uh, and search for News Talk, you'll find my video review of it there. It's incredible. This TV is powered by quantum dot technology, which means the picture is naturally bright and so colorful. The first thing I put on was my favorite movie, The Dark Knight, and I could not get over how much better the viewing experience was on this screen versus my own still quite good, but not as good TV. Not only is the picture second to none, there's also all the ports you could want for gaming or other accessories. There's a solar powered remote, a stunningly thin frame, 
the list goes on. It's safe to say that I like it a lot, but if you do want to see it, uh, head over to YouTube, just search for News Talk and you'll see my full review there. But if you want to do better than that, you want to get your hands on one of your own, simply listen to this. And I thought my jokes were bad. Give me one reason why I shouldn't have my boy here pull your head off. How about a magic trick? I'm gonna make this pencil disappear. It's... it's gone. Oh, and by the way, the suit, it wasn't cheap. You ought to know, you bought it. That's a snippet from The Dark Knight, but what I want to know is, can you name the actor who played the Joker? Text TV plus your name and answer to 53106 at a cost of 30 cent. The competition closes on Wednesday at 5pm and the winner will be announced on next week's show. Best of luck. Now, when we come back here on News Talk, we'll step inside the world of cybersecurity and meet the teams tackling cyber threats here in Ireland. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. Welcome back to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Last week, I brought you a conversation with the director of the National Cybersecurity Centre, Richard Brown, as part of EU Cybersecurity Month. And today, I'm going to bring you another conversation with some other people who are fighting cybercrime. Detective Sergeant Paul Johnstone is the Cyber Safety Officer with the Garda National Cybercrime Bureau. And he told me about the work he and his colleagues are doing on a daily basis. There are a number of sections within the Bureau. The the two primary roles of the Bureau are cyber forensics and cyber investigations. So that could be where a ransomware attack against a company occurs or where you're examining computers in a murder or a manslaughter or a missing person or something like that. And, And my role is one of those within the Bureau itself. So it's cyber safety. And what we do is we gather the information that are collected from the investigations or the forensic examinations, or our partners, such as the NCSC. And we then produce information that goes out on social media, to the print media, to events that we take part in. The purpose of those is to advise the public on the risks that we're seeing out there and how they can protect themselves, the steps they need to take. Because this is a a collaborative issue between both ourselves, the likes of the NCSC, industry, and largely the public, because they're the ones that are the most at risk. Does investigation techniques, do investigation techniques alter when you are doing cybercrime versus a crime on the street? You know, do you need to do the methods that were there for years and years and years easily translate into the digital world? They do, because at the end of the day, like most cybercrimes are just offline crimes. They just happen to occur over a computer. Mm. Um, They're just facilitated by a computer, whether it's an attack against a system. You could equate that to your old criminal damage offences, whether it's an online phishing scam. You could equate that to an old fraud. They're all very, very similar. So the investigative skills are very similar. The only thing that you really need to consider is that when you're looking for the evidence, a lot of it is available online. So you have to be talking to service providers like Microsoft or Facebook. You have to be pulling information from emails or social media profiles. You have to be looking at the computer itself to pull that data together. And and that data is volatile. It's very easily damaged. So that's the main awareness as far as the investigative skills are concerned. But it's no different. So that's why when we look for people to come into the actual bureau, 
we will look for somebody who has that background, who has been a guard, a member on the ground, dealing with all of those types of crimes for a long period of time. And they, they've honed those skills. They have that personal learning and they can bring that to the work that they do within the Bureau. It also, like sometimes people think, you know, when you're in the Cyber Forensics Bureau, you're, you're examining a computer and you pull the information out, you present it at a package and somebody else goes off and does it. That's not, it's not as simple as that. You have to be able to look at it in the round and say, well, actually, maybe I need to look at this little element or maybe there might be something more over here or maybe this data is telling me something different so that you can go off on those tangents if you need to because there could be a victim in the middle of it. There could be evidence of a completely different crime. And if you're too focused or you don't have that skill set, you'll miss that. I want to talk about the victim because although we're talking about um, cybersecurity and we're talking about ransomware attacks, there are other types of cyber crime. Mm. Um, there's been a lot of talk here in Ireland in recent years about um, sexual image uh, based abuse. Mm. And obviously, there's a victim there. Um, we know about Coco's Law, we know about Nicole Fox, we know about her family and the work her mother is doing. When you are investigating those types of cyber crimes, Obviously, it's very delicate and it's not a banging the table, tell me who done it type thing. The soft skills matter, I'm sure, just as much as your digital investigative skills. Yeah, your, your, your soft skills apply to your victim, number one, and to your offender, number two. You have to treat everybody with dignity. You have to treat everybody with respect. You have to be balanced in your approach as far as that's concerned. And when you have a sensitive investigation where the victim is either vulnerable or the activity that they've been subjected to makes them vulnerable, then you have to respect that. A large portion of the work that we do would be around the area of child sexual exploitation material. So what would be defined as child pornography in the legislation. You have to be cognizant of the fact that that victim, you're potentially going to be meeting them in the worst time of their life. You're also going to be sitting across from an offender who is also in the worst time of their life. And you have to approach that delicately. And that's a skill that you build up through your work, but it's also an inherent quality that you have to be able to treat them equally with respect and also to respect their rights. My final question is, um, it can be a bit scary to have these conversations or to hear these conversations because we're all being encouraged to use digital devices and do our banking online and go paperless, which is great when it works. But when you're targeted by something, you think, oh, geez, am I a fool now for doing this? Um, what is the advice to the individual listening to this now who may be a bit apprehensive? Maybe they're not digital uh, natives. Maybe they're not that savvy when it comes to technology. There are things that people can do to keep safe online, isn't there? There are things that people can do. Like People shouldn't be afraid to use technology. It's there for their benefit. There are massive benefits from it. There are also potential risks. But the benefits largely outweigh the risks. And the risks can be mitigated by just a few simple precautions. Say, for example, if you get an email in, you don't know who it's from. Ignore it. If you get an email in that has a link in it, hover over the link to see does it go where it says it's actually going. Or just phone the company or the bank or the revenue or whoever it happens to be that the email is supposed to be coming from. If you get a friend request from somebody you don't know, Ignore it or make sure that they're either recommended or you do a little bit of research to find out who they are. If you get an offer of a prize 
did you buy a ticket? If you didn't buy a ticket, you didn't win the prize at the end of the day. If you see something that looks too good to be true, research it online, research the profile online, research the company name online, take the simple precautions. And it's all about informing yourself about the types of risks that are out there. If you're informed, you're prepared. If you're prepared, you can prevent. That was Detective Sergeant Paul Johnstone of the Garda National Cybercrime Bureau. I also spoke to Paul's colleague, Detective Sergeant Bridget Buckley, who's a liaison officer between the Garda National Cybercrime Bureau and the National Cyber Security Centre. She told me about the types of cybercrimes she has investigated. The crimes I've been involved in have varied from, I remember my first investigation actually was in relation to the hacking of an email account and uh, it was a Gmail account and the victim uh, knew that somebody else was accessing her emails and she kept having to reset her password at the time and uh, this was long before there was multi-factor authentication and uh, you know if somebody I knew somebody close to her was or somebody who knew information about her was involved because they kept answering the security questions Um, and that investigation led to uh, a trace of the activity on her account back to her locality and it turned out to be in in that particular case a disgruntled boyfriend but it really you know it just opened my eyes to I suppose the possibilities out there that could have been any threat actor Um, sometimes it's so close to you sometimes it's insider Um, I've been involved in investigations where um, there is a I suppose it's alluring. We're, we're we're talking about European Cyber Crime Month here in terms of phishing and that, and the luring for financial gain and trying to build up that trust relationship, be it a romance fraud or or a phishing attempt, and and asking somebody for money and then building up that trust relationship. And their their cyber uh, threat actors are so sophisticated and so patient mm. that they build up that profile or picture. They have their reconnaissance done beforehand. They know who they're talking to, um, and it's because that trust is there, they monetize on that, uh, the gain of it. So um, the, from malware investigations um, to ransomware, um, all sorts, uh, it's, it's very interesting and very, very broad. A lot of these cyber criminals are very sophisticated, they're very intelligent, they're always using new tools. From the little that I know, it seems like they still rely on human error and exploiting you know whether it is a romance fraud somebody who wants a partner or if it's an elderly person someone who's trying to use technology to engage with their family or someone who's super busy and doesn't proof uh, an attachment before they click on it how vital is the human error part in the in the wider chain of cybercrime? Uh, yeah that's a very good question there there is always that human factor i suppose uh, the way that the cybersecurity framework looks at uh, security, it's people, technology and processes. And it's raising that awareness to the people through be a training in your corporate uh, environment. Um, but that training now has to expand onto your home environment. So whatever technologies you're using, if it's a hybrid approach, you need to be using the same in your, your home environment, VPNs, etc. But the human element, the threat actor will always try and do that. And it's building up the trust. And that human element could be just get you just to be distracted or click on something that you wouldn't normally uh, click on, be it an attachment or a link, or just to do some action. But that trust is, is needed. And that that's where what they're good at is building up that, that, that relationship and uh, phishing 
can lead to other things like uh, the ransomware attack, malware be, be, being reported. So I suppose the biggest thing is a no, your policies in place, a no-blame policy so that you get people to report, be it in your corporate environment or, or get people so that they know exactly how they're to report, who they report to, and they're not afraid to report. And then actions can take place from there. That was Detective Sergeant Bridget Buckley. Now, when we come back here on News Talk, we'll ask what HR leaders have to learn as we continue to grapple with the changing face of work. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. Welcome back to the final part of this week's Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. And coming up after six is John Fardy with Screen Time. John, welcome. Good evening. Good I was going evening. to say word up, but no. I can't really Unsubscribe. Get out of my studio. Thank you. <laughs> Before I go, can I tell you what's on screen go. time? So Paul Figg is the director of Bridesmaids, yes. the reboot of Ghostbusters. He's on talking to me about his great new kind of young adult movie on Netflix, The School for Good and Evil. Colm O'Regan who's not a movie maker, but he's a very funny man. Very funny. He's talking to me about maths in movies and how maths is portrayed because he's big into maths and it's National Maths Week. Will you ask him about Goodwill Hunting, my favourite movie of all time? Is that your favourite movie of all time? It's one of my three favourite yeah, movies of all time. It's up there in my top ten. That's kind of very a guy movie, a guy cry movie. So I'm pleased you like it. My favourite movies are, uh, so Goodwill Hunting, uh, The Dark Knight, which I was talking about earlier okay. on in the show, and uh, Goodfellas, all very grim. Not bad choices. Seal of approval from John yes. Fardy. And then finally, I, I'm, I'm intrigued by that. There, Some of those would be in my top ten. Anyway, then talking of favourite movies, the comedian John Cleary is on talking about his favourite movie, which is neither of those three. Okay, well maybe one week I might get an invite on to talk about my favourite movies. Oh look, I gotta go. Okay, I get out of my studio. Uh, all that is coming up after six o'clock with John Fardy. Now, here's another chance to win that stunning 65-inch TV from Samsung. Yeah, we have a Samsung S95B to give away to one lucky listener. This TV is gorgeous. I had it for a few weeks as part of a review and I absolutely loved it. It is powered by Quantum Dot technology. That means the picture is naturally bright and so colourful. I watched everything from TV shows. I'm watching Bad Sisters. It's great. Uh, Right up to sport and gaming. It is incredible. If you would like to see my full review of it, you can head on over to YouTube right now, search for News Talk, and you will find an episode of Tech Bytes there dedicated to this. But rather than just looking at it, what about winning one? Well, if you want to be in with a chance to win, take a listen to this. And I thought my jokes were bad. Give me one reason why I shouldn't have my boy here pull your head off. How about a magic trick? I'm gonna make this pencil disappear. It's... It's gone. Oh, and by the way, the suit, it wasn't cheap. You ought to know, you bought it. That is a snippet of The Dark Knight, but what I want to know is, can you name the actor who played the Joker? Text TV plus your name and answer to 53106 at a cost of 30 cent. The competition closes on Wednesday, October 19th at 5pm and the winner will be announced on next week's show. Now, we know the world of work has changed dramatically and while things have thankfully calmed down a little bit, we're by no means done on this journey. David Collings is a professor of human resource management at DCU and he joins me now. Um, David, I suppose we've all had a bit of growing pains, for want of a better expression, in the world of work over the last two years. 
But can you just talk me through some of the challenges that HR leaders have faced and will continue to face as we, I suppose, get to grips and get to figuring out what the future of work is going to look like? Sure. Yeah, Jess, absolutely. A pleasure to be here. And yeah, there's no doubt the last two years have been transformative for work uh, in in every organisation. You know, there's been changes to how people work, where people work, why people work. I I guess the most obvious manifestation of that is hybrid work and Mm -hmm. and that tends to get most of the attention and clearly, you know, for 40% of us or so that are lucky enough to be able to work virtually, that has fundamentally changed how we do the work. But the majority of people still go to the workplace or need to go to the workplace on a daily basis and for them uh, life, life has continued in a workplace, albeit in different ways. So in terms of hybrid work, you know, that's changed how we work. It's changed uh, for leaders. It's different requirements in terms of how do we manage those workers that are not co-located with us. Um, It's created challenges for HR around culture, uh, around how do we kind of maintain culture? How do we build culture in that virtual environment? How do we manage performance in that virtual environment? How do we manage collaboration? So fundamentally changed how we think about really important questions about how work happens. Um, For those of us that are are still in the workplace, uh, equally there's been challenges Obviously, our, our health was a real concern at, mm-hmm. the, at the start of the pandemic. So that that physical well-being. But but I think that well-being question is one of the positives of, of the pandemic. And we've seen a greater focus on, on well-being. Um, and I think that I hope that's something that we can continue to see. So, you know, if you look at something like the Irish Life Health of the Nation survey, that showed that overall health maintained a kind of consistent level pre-pandemic to during the pandemic. But what we saw was things like relational health and well-being, there were significant impacts there. So people suffered from the lack of personal relationships when they weren't in the workplace. Um, They suffered from a a, a decrease in work-life balance. So there wasn't that fixed start and end of the day. And how do we manage that as individuals was Mm -hmm. a big challenge. So so that was a big bucket of change. And then obviously we saw massive sectors digitised to a degree that we could never have imagined pre-pandemic. So, you know, by some estimates, retail in two months grew as much as it had online retail grew in two months as much as it had in the previous decade. You know, look at the shift of healthcare delivery and how healthcare was delivered, virtual appointments of doctors, you know, banking, you know, all of those sectors and many more shifted fundamentally. So with this shift in terms of how we delivered many services and products, what really changed the skill sets required of workers. So all of this change was happening, um, you know, in a very condensed period of time, challenging HR leaders to understand, well, how do we manage in these different ways? How do we upskill and reskill our employees? How do we manage culture? How do we manage well-being? What I find fascinating is how, just within my circle of friends and colleagues, opinions vary massively in terms of where we are in terms of the world of work. There's some people who've texted me going, I'm so lucky I get to work from home every day. Amazing. And when I think about working from home, it kind of makes me itch a little bit. I'm just, I don't think I'm suited to it. And while it's great that we're all individual and we all have different takes, that's a big challenge. How do you cater to those? Is it possible to cater to those? And how do you manage that situation? Sure. I think it's a really interesting question. I I think you're so right. I think the assumption is working from home is better for Mm. most of us. Certainly the narrative, right, that's out there in the media, like you read about working from home, it's this great thing that makes life better for us all. And for some of us it is, right? If you have a nice home situation with plenty of space uh, and, you know, your personality type. So if you're introverted, for example, you might be much more happy working at home than an extrovert who really gets energy from being around people, for example. Um, You know, there's so many kind of 
personal and situational things. But from an organizational point of view, there's a lot of different work, right? And what the research is very much evolving here. And nobody knows all the answers in terms of what works best. To me, I think what's been lost a little bit in the discussion is, you know, from an organizational perspective, there's also drivers of having people together. And I think the debate has very much focused on two days in the office or three days yeah. in the office rather than why should we be together? Right. And in mm-hmm. workplaces, that varies. Right. So so we know people collaborate better on, on average when they're together. Right. So Microsoft said them, did some very interesting research over the pandemic that showed when it came to networks, the people that we're close to, we double down on those networks when we're virtual or, or we're not co-located. But our distant networks, and that's often where innovation happens because they have different ideas and different um, views of the world. We, we really, they grew more distant yeah. when we were virtual. So managing that balance between, you know, how do we give people some autonomy, yet have a workplace where we bring people together to work on collaborative tasks. Um, you know, equally, you know, there are lots of reasons people would like to come to the workplace. So so I think few organisations would say you cannot come to the workplace. Um, but I think certainly, I think the, the conversation needs to be more balanced in terms of, you know, why should we be in the workplace? What do we do better together? And how do we design a workplace that facilitates that collaboration when we're together? But to the point of we don't have all the answers, Mm. I think it's for most organizations, it's a bit early to be going out with certainty. This is our strategy for, um, you know, remote working. It'll be two days a week, three days a week. I'm certainly the organizations I'm working with. I would always advise, you know, think about it as as a trial. We're going to try this out. We're going to see what works well. We're going to adapt. We're going to evolve and we're going to find what works best for employees and what works best for us as an organization. Yeah, it's really interesting. If you look at what some of the big tech firms did, for example, at the start of the pandemic, they were like, you'll never be in office again. And then they realized, hang on a second, that doesn't work. And now they're trying to bring people back. Another area that fascinates me, though, is in relation to retention and recruitment. Mm -hmm. So I have said this many, many times. When I started working here in Eastock as an intern, I was 19 years old, didn't even know how to make coffee because I wasn't a coffee drinker back then. And I learned so much by watching people do things, literally down to making a cup of coffee right through to producing a programme. If you're a a new recruit for a company, you're not going to get that same immersion. How do we ensure that those people aren't left behind? Because we're not just talking about someone my age who decides to leave one company and work for another company. We're talking about kids coming out of college. It's a big issue. For sure, absolutely. And we did some research actually on virtual internships during the pandemic mm-hmm. and that was really interesting. And we saw a lot of organisations were very uh, weary to, to shift their internships virtually initially because they were afraid they couldn't f- provide the experience that they traditionally had to these interns and it might somehow devalue the brand of the organisation. But those organisations that went ahead with it were, were actually ultimately very satisfied with it, but they had to do things differently, right? The first thing is they had to be more deliberate. So that learning by by osmosis that you speak about obviously doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. So I need to set up those uh, relationships. So with my immediate work team, connections with my immediate work team to know how to do my job, but connections with others in the organisation to get a sense of culture and how things are done about there. I need to be much more deliberate in terms of planning and allocating work so somebody knows what to do in those early days. It can't just happen organically like it did in the past. So, So a lot of it is about more stronger planning. I would say in the context of our earlier discussion about, you know, how many days somebody should be in the mm-hmm. workplace, I would say new recruits should be in the office more than established people as, as a rule, right? So they can have that opportunity to find their way and get to know the business. So so I think being more deliberate, planning ahead, um, being calling out the cultural aspects of work, because that's often the bit that, that people struggle with. So mm-hmm. calling out examples when people 
do things, behaviours that are aligned with our values and the like is a big part of it. So, so it really is planning ahead, being more deliberate. And I think spending more time in the office in those early days is a really good way for those folks to get a sense of, of how things are done around, around here. And what about retention? Because a lot of people, it was great, a lot of people sort of sat up and woke up during the pandemic and thought, I'm miserable doing this every day. It doesn't matter if I'm at home or in the office or in Morocco, I'm miserable doing this type of work. What can people do to try and keep good people happy? Yeah. So the assumption here is it's about pay, right? Mm-hmm. And certainly there is pressure on pay at the moment with inflation and all of that. So I think there's no doubt. But for most people, it's not just about pay. Pay is a small part of the story. There are some things that haven't changed. We, we want to be challenged. Uh, we want to do work where we have the opportunity to, to master that work and develop. We want to have good relationships with colleagues. Those kind of things haven't changed. I think what the pandemic did change is it changed our focus on our work-life balance, for example. And again, we mentioned some of the data from, from the Irish Life Health and Nation survey. They found that the biggest thing people wanted from the workplace was work-life balance. Yeah. Second was pay, right? Uh, so, so I think we have this recognition of the importance of work-life balance and that's partly about workload, right? It's partly about management, work, managing workload, but it's partly about in this hybrid environment, our day doesn't start and end, right? And again, we saw some data from Microsoft that talked about the three peaks in the workday. So we start work in the morning, we get busy, we have our lunch whatever break we take it picks up in the afternoon but for a lot of us we come back to our emails in the evening or we come back to aspects of work so our day has extended and and that's a challenge right because our downtime is smaller Um, so so work-life balance those natural bookends to the day at the start and the end of the day are gone so that's a big challenge I think the other thing people want and I think this is one of the reasons people are re-evaluating their career choices is they want to do meaningful work Yes, and purpose is much more important to people and I think COVID gave us a chance to reflect on you know why am I on this treadmill uh, and and doing you know sixty hours a week on this, and I see no impact on the customer or the client or the patient or whatever it is? So so I think purpose and well being are are the two things that have kind of risen on the on the chart of of priorities. But that other stuff around meaning uh, around uh, you know um, challenge uh, uh, mastery. Um, you know, those kind of things are still there. Career development, those things haven't changed. What has become more indexed, I think, is purpose and well-being. Finally and briefly, I want to talk to you a little bit about technology, right? This is a tech show, believe it or not. Um, People who were allergic to technology overnight had to become proficient with Zoom, Teams, whatever platforms being used. I think there's been a more uh, highlighted emphasis on the soft skills and the humanity in the workplace and the importance of the humanity. Do you believe that those softer skills of being able to look someone in the eye and, you know, communicate authoritatively are going to continue to be important in whatever the future of work looks like? 100% 100% Jess, yeah, absolutely. I, I think what we're seeing is we're seeing most jobs now require some knowledge of technology mm-hmm. at some level, right? So those of us that did work that wasn't particularly technological in the past are going to need some technological capability. But I think it's also important that those of us that have very technical jobs have those softer skills. So we talk about T-shaped graduates. I've depth in an area, but I also have that breadth. And for those of us in tech spaces, that breadth is some of those soft, softer skills. And, you know, we were chatting before we went on air about people who get promoted into leadership roles mm-hmm. because they're good at their job technically. The skills that make me good technically technically are often almost the opposite of the skills that need make me a good people leader. So as our, in organizations, we need to be, you know, promoting people based on 
behaviours that are aligned with the values of our organisation, motivation to be leaders um, and, and helping them on that journey to become leaders, providing them with the skills. Because the skills in the office of being a leader are different to the skills in the virtual environment. So it's mm-hmm. even more complex now. So I think we really need to not assume that because somebody's technically competent that they're going to be a good leader because that sets the tone for the organisation and we talk about all these lovely things about well-being and diversity and inclusion my experience of working in organisations my line manager and if they have terrible people skills my experience of working in an organisation isn't going to be very good from the outset. Yeah, I find this entire space fascinating. And the good news is, if you do too, you can hear more from David Collings because Irish Life is the proud sponsor of the IBEC HR Leadership Summit, which is taking place at Croke Park on October 20th. And David is one of the speakers. Uh, David Collings, thank you so much for joining us here on News Talk. And unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Busy show as ever. If you missed a minute, you can head on over to the News Talk app powered by Go Loud. Search for Tech Talk and hit subscribe. I'll be back with Shane and Kira on Monday's News Talk Breakfast. But in the meantime, have a great weekend.